Well, good morning, Cornerstone Church. Everybody have a good Thanksgiving? Yeah. Eat plenty of turkey and dressing. Where's my, where's my chicken and dressing people at? Come on, there's, there's chicken and dressing, and then there's stuffing, right? I don't even know what that is. Like, I don't want to eat anything that's been stuffed in anything. So, um, so it's a chicken and dressing type of place. That's what I'm talking about. Um, we now have made it to the last chapter of 1 Thessalonians, and when you thought it was over, we're gonna hit 2 Thessalonians next week. And so uh, that's why we named this series Thessalonians. And so, uh, so we're gonna go through both of those. It's gonna lead right up to Christmas, and uh, I'm excited to see what the Lord does. Uh, but as we now get to the last chapter, we get to see some uh, very direct, some very literal uh, instruction from Paul. Paul has been building a case all through uh, these five chapters. And we noticed last week in chapter four how Paul transitioned in his writing. He, he uh, said, finally. And like any good preacher, when they say finally, they still got about half the sermon to go. And uh, that's what he was doing. He, he wasn't closing. He was actually just switching gears. And he began now to uh, tell them some exhortation, some instruction, some, hey, I need to warn you about this. I need to comfort you in this. I need to do this uh, and, and draw you in and, and get in your ear. And so uh, we've seen uh, through these chapters how Paul has uh, reiterated the power of the gospel to the believers there in the church. And uh, if you haven't been with us the whole series, um, it's worth knowing that Thessalonians was written to the church at Thessalonica. And that's a mouthful, but the Thessalonians, the church there, they um, were under a lot of persecution, a lot of attack. They were uh, shadowed by a temple there, a pagan temple, uh, much like we read all throughout the uh, New Testament. And we get to see how Paul is uh, witnessing to them, how Paul's strengthening them, and how Paul is sharing the power of the gospel to them and what that power does. When somebody is presented with the gospel with power, it should change some things. There should be a, transform, a transformation that happens, and we get to see what that transformation looks like as we work our way through these chapters. And so, uh, so we get to see here uh, now, as we saw in chapter four, now in chapter five, where Paul starts to say things like, I urge you, brothers. I, I beg of you, brothers. I'm asking of you, brothers. There's other places in the Bible, the same Greek word. He's like, I beseech you, brethren. It is this, I need to talk to you. I need you to listen. I need you to come in. It's got this imagery there of, of a coach calling the team captain to the sideline. You know, call, we're, hey, because this has happened, this is now the play we're about to run. And so that's what, what Paul is doing to the church. Because riots broke out when the gospel was presented there in the city, because I had to flee to another city to protect my life, because you're now receiving all kinds of persecution and threats and all that, Come here, let me, show, let me tell you some things. And so we get to see some very direct things uh, where we can live a life pleasing to God. Last week, we discovered that that was the, the main purpose in our life, that our main purpose is not to please ourselves, uh, though we want to, and though that seems to be the easiest thing for us, but our main purpose in life as Christians is to please God because he is our authority. And since he's the, our authority, we have to submit to him and his will, not my will. And so Paul just keeps on in this same vein here of help, helping the church understand ways that we can live to please the Lord. And so uh, we see that ways to please the Lord is opposite of ways to please ourselves or ways to please the flesh, right? And so we're just in this tension, if you will. And that's the Christian life, is to be in this tension of, 
way, I had this desire to please myself, but I also had this desire to please the Lord. And so I'm battling back and forth. And so Paul is helping them make accurate decisions, uh, clear, literal things to do. Uh, he's, like, he's almost talking to like a type A task-oriented type of person. And that's me. I'm like, okay, give me a checklist. And so Paul starts to give them a lot of checklists. Um, as, as you go to 1 Thessalonians 5, you're gonna see that Paul starts talking about um, the second coming of Christ. And we're gonna actually not read those scriptures today because we addressed that actually the week before this sermon series started when everything broke out with Israel and Hamas. And, and we talked about these scriptures, the first part of 1 Thessalonians. You can go back on the YouTube channel and see that. It's called Rapture Ready. And we talked about the second coming of the Lord. I would encourage you uh, to read that, uh, to view that. Uh, and we talked also about um, uh, Hamas and those kind of things that's going on in the Middle East uh, so that we can learn and know about, about that. So Paul now is continuing on talking about how to live this called out life, being called out of the culture, called out of the world. And so we're gonna see today uh, how to live a countercultural uh, life, how to be a countercultural church. That's the, the title of the message today, is how to be a countercultural church. And so Paul is dealing with a bunch of people that have been inundated into this Greek Roman culture. And we talked a little bit about that culture last week, how perverse it is, how wicked it is, and, and the things that they do there. And so once they give their life to Christ, they're bringing all these thought patterns and habits and lifestyles and all these previous things with them. We're, we like to call it baggage, right? We're just bringing all this baggage with them into the church. And so we have to address things. We're like, well, hey, no, no, now that Christ reigns and rules in your heart, now that your mind's been renewed, you can't do those types of things. You can't act on those types of things. And we, we talked about some of that last week, and it's really in the same vein of how we can live countercultural, ways against the world. As we are living out the Christian life, it's gonna be a headwind. As we're going and living out a life pleasing to God, we're gonna be swimming against the current. And so we wanna learn how to stand firm in that, how to make right right decisions in that. And so uh, Paul gives us some instructions of how to do that. And so today I would like, instead of us reading all the scriptures together, I would like for us to just take it in sections. And so as you see in your notes, there's nine points. And so I'm gonna preach nine sermons today. Um, and so get ready. Um, I hope we get all through all nine points. I think we will. Um, and, but if we don't, we'll hit it next week. So uh, I would love for us to pick up in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, uh, verse 12. And just to switch things up today, we won't be standing since we'll just be reading a couple verses as, at a time. Um, but if you have your place in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, go to verse 12. If you've got verse 12 and you're ready to read, say, let's go. All right. So Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12, he says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. And verse 13 says, And to esteem them very highly in love because of their work, be at peace among yourselves. And so Paul now is saying, hey, you need to respect and love your leaders. And now I'm not gonna uh, put all that attention on me because that word's not just talking about me, it's talking about those who are over you in the Lord, your spiritual moms and dads, those who are teaching and preaching and elders and pastors and all those people that are over you spiritually. Paul's saying that you should respect them not only that, you should love them and you should honor them. And I don't know about you, but that really is countercultural because we live in a time today that the world would not respect any authority. 
because they would say, I'm the ultimate authority. And so I'm not gonna respect you. I'm gonna cancel you. Like if you're trying to speak into my life, you're trying to be an authority figure over me, who are you to do that? And so we, we live in a world and it's nothing new. It's the same in Paul's day where they didn't respect authority. They didn't honor authority. And Paul's saying, you're letting that culture creep into the church and you're not respecting those people that are over you in the Lord. And so uh, as a countercultural church, we should be people of honor. We should be people of honor. That's one of the core values of the ministry here is that we would uh, have a heart of honor, that we're gonna honor other people because we understand that honor is our calling. We are called to honor those who went before us, those who are over us, even those who are under us, to honor them and thank them and be appreciative of them. We wanna be different than the culture. And Hebrews 13 says it this way, it says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, not groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And so notice the weight of, of that leadership, of that authority, somebody that's in that position, they're accountable, they're responsible for your souls. Uh, but I do think that it's important to, to pull out some characteristics of the type of leader that Paul's talking about. He, he uses very intentional words. He says that leader that labors among you. So it's not a leader that's lording over you. It's a leader that's right there with you, laboring among you. So, so Paul is now creating this first idea of servant leadership, really. He, he saw it from Jesus, and now he's, he's putting it in the church, and we do it today, is that we should be servant leaders. And so the characteristics of anybody in a countercultural church leadership role would be that of a servant leader. But he also says that it is those who warn you those who correct you, those who have enough boldness to stand before you and call sin, sin, and wrong, wrong. And so that's what we should be. We should be a church that's not afraid of the hard things, afraid to address the things that go against the culture, but we should, uh, be, we should lean into that and say, what does God's word say about that? And Paul says, that's the type of leadership that should be in the church. And then he says, be at peace among yourselves. Be at peace among yourselves. Uh, that's very countercultural because the world right now is not at peace. People of the world are not at peace. And so we wanna be a people of peace. Number two there is a, we wanna be a people of peace. And when the people of peace come together, this is a place of peace. That this right here, can, this place, this organization, this organism right here can be different than anything you see in the world. That people here can come and experience peace. That's the heart of our father. Even at the end of this chapter, we'll go ahead and read it now, but even in verse, what is it? Verse 23 of 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says, now may the God of peace. That's who God is. He's the God of peace. And so if we wanna be people of peace, we have to understand that the God we serve is the God of peace. That, so peace is not found anywhere else in this world doesn't matter the status, it doesn't matter the income, it doesn't matter the relationship that you have, you're not gonna be able to experience peace because you don't know the God of peace. And so that's what the church should be, one who knows the God of peace. And as we look at our world today, there's an extreme lack of peace. We understand that when peace is absent, then anxiety is overwhelming. And so the opposite of peace would be something like anxiety. And right now we live in such a time that anxiety is at an all-time high in our generation because you've got inflation, you've got economy things, you've got uh, presidential elections coming up, rumors of war, all kinds of things that people don't have peace. They have anxiety. 
but they should be different among the church because we can live in the same world that a non-believer lives in and still have peace. Well, why is that? Because 1 Peter 5 tells me that when I have this anxiety, I don't have to carry it. When I have this anxiety, I don't have to live with it or deal with it or cope with it. I don't need a medication to get me through it. When I have anxiety, the Bible says to cast it, to cast it on Jesus because he cares for us. That's 1 Peter 5, 7. It says, for me to cast my cares on him because he cares for me. So this God of peace that we talk about, this God of peace is not only uh, providing peace, but he also cares enough that he wants to carry whatever has you anxious, whatever has you worried, whatever is on your mind, whatever's on your shoulders, weighing you down, causing you to be afraid, causing you to be uncertain, causing you to be shaken. He says, cast that on me. Cast it on me because I care for you. And, I, and it's relevant today, especially in this time of between Thanksgiving and Christmas, studies would show us that this gap we're in right now, the week after Thanksgiving leading up to Christmas, there are more intrusive thoughts and there are more suicides that happen in this span than any other time added up in the rest of the year. So you take all of them added up, more still happens right now because the enemy gets in, especially in the holiday season, and he divides and he causes bitterness. And he reminds you of that thing that they did to you. And he, he, he reminds you of how dysfunctional your family is. And he reminds you of how good you're, you're not. And he reminds you of all these things. And he reminds you of how the world is, is, is turning for the worst and it's getting bad and nobody knows what's gonna happen. And all of a sudden fear sets in. And before I know it, I'm anxious and I'm worried and I'm depressed and I'm frozen and I can't move because I'm afraid that I'll make the wrong step. But Jesus is clear. He says, cast that on me. I don't know about you, but I have enough faith to believe that my God is big enough to handle whatever worry, doubt, fear that I have. And so we cast that on him. Somebody needs to hear that today. You can cast that on him, that there's no problem too big, nor is there a problem too small. You can cast your cares on him because he cares for you. And you can have that peace, that God of peace is gonna come in to your life. He's gonna dwell in you and so you can be a people of peace. The reality is, is that the world wants it, but they don't know how to get it. They're craving for it. They're craving for peace. May this be the place that peace is found. May this be the place where we invite those who are far from him and say, come, experience him. You can have peace. This is a place of peace. And then Paul would then go on in verse 14 to talk about some ministry to other people. Verse 14, he says, and we urge you, that's that same word again. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Notice that Paul is talking to the church. He says, brothers. We can translate that word brothers and sisters. He's not talking to leadership in this moment. He's talking to the members of the church, not pastors or elders. He's talking to you and I, he's talking to every one of us, individual members of a church. He's saying that it is you brothers that should be doing the ministry, that you should be the one that does the ministry. And in growth track, we always love to see the look on the people's face when we, when we give them this statement. We say, every Christian is a minister. And they're like, I didn't sign up for that. We're like, yeah, today's your ordination service. Like we're about to ordain you right now, you're a minister. 
And I understand that that term, especially in our culture, especially in the South among different denominations, that can mean the one who's preaching, the one that's standing up on a stage with a microphone. But the reality is, is that the word minister just means the one that's doing the ministry. And so every one of us are called to do the ministry. And we see some of those examples here. At the core of this, Paul is telling us that a countercultural church, that we are people of compassion. People of compassion. He would write in Philippians chapter two, along the same lines here, he says, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. This is so countercultural because we live in a time today, so did Paul, where people of the world would say, no, 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 get yours first. Get yours, do you, do what's best for you. Don't worry about them. You need to elevate yourself. You need to advance yourself. You need to do what's best for you. And Paul said, no, no, no. You can't do what's best for you and neglect the needs of the church, of the people around you, your brothers and sisters in Christ. You have to be compassionate. Now, in our, in our view of compassion, we might define it as, oh, my heart breaks for them. Oh, I feel sorry for them. But compassion is not how you feel. You can't just feel compassion. You have to show compassion. You have to show it. And so that's what Paul's saying here is, you've got to show this. We've got to be compassionate people, not conceited about ourselves but compassionate. And so how do we show it? Well, he says that you can admonish the idle. That, that literally means warn the unruly, warn the lazy person. That's another translation of that word idle, is a lazy person, the one that don't want to work. Paul says that this should be a place of warning. We don't like this, but Paul's saying this should be a place of correction, that when we gather together, that we as a church should be corrected that when we get off the path, somebody should say, hey, you're about to hit the ditch. Not wait till we hit the ditch and come see us in the hospital, but keep us off the ditch, keep us on the road, in between the lines, right? And so Paul's saying, hey, you've got to confront them. You've got to correct them. He uses this same language in the previous chapter. We didn't get to those verses, but it talks about those who are idle, those who don't work. In Paul's time, you see, some of the church was so, uh, impressed upon the rapture and the second coming that they thought that it was going to happen at any moment, so they stopped working. But also you had a group of people in the culture, the Greek culture of the time, they didn't want to work. You see, they thought that the higher a status of a man, the less work he did. And so they wanted to uphold this high status in the culture, and so they didn't want to work because they thought that, well, if I work, then I must be like a servant, and so I don't want that status. I don't want that image I wanna save face here. I wanna look like somebody that I'm not. And so they didn't work. And so Paul might here be talking about those people in chapter four, we're not really sure. But either way, he says, you've gotta correct that. If there's behavior that's not of God, that's not pleasing to God, we've gotta correct it. And so uh, we should be ones that aren't idle. We should be ones that are hardworking because that goes against the culture, right? We live in a time where nobody wants to work. It's hard to find workers. And if they do, they're not doing an excellent job. It should not be said that of, of that among Christians because we should be hardworking people because everything we do, we don't do it for man. We don't do it for selfish gain. We do it for the glory of God. And so God deserves our best. We should work hard. He says, encourage the faint-hearted. Faint-hearted there means small soul. You've got a small soul that you're just, you're faint-hearted. And that's the person that doesn't feel courageous. 
That's a person that doesn't feel full of faith and on fire for God. Maybe it's because they're in a season of, of suffering and season of loss. Maybe they're grieving something. Maybe they're going through a trial. Maybe they're just in it right now. And Paul says, that's okay. Come, come and let's encourage them. Let's pour faith into them. You know what that tells me? That you don't have to have it all together to come in the room. That it's okay if you don't feel like it. I'm not telling you to be fake. I'm just telling you to be faithful, to come in the room anyway and let us pour some faith into you. You could come in with weak faith, but you're gonna go out full of faith. And so that's what Paul's saying. We've got to encourage. So not only are we a place of correction, we're a place of courage where people can come in and find courage, find faith. We could pour that into them. And so we understand that without that, without that faith, it's impossible to please God. That's what the word says. And so this should be a place where faith is increased, where people are built up. The world loves to tear down. The world loves to destroy, to get you at the lowest of lows so that they can just trample over you. They can take advantage of you. They can use you as a stepping stone. But Paul says, not here, not in the church. We should be those who are pouring faith, building up. We're gonna correct you. But we're also gonna pour courage and comfort into you. And then he says, help the weak, help the weak. Many commentaries would say that this is in reference to the chapter four that we talked about last week, those who are weak in their flesh, those who are, are prone to easily give in to temptation, temptation to sin. And Paul said, you've got to help those believers. You've got to strengthen them because they're weak and they're easily given in to sin, and the desires of their flesh. And so we should be a place where people grow spiritually. They stand strong they're able to withstand any attack, any temptation, anything that comes against them. And so we welcome the weak. Paul said, I became like the weak so that I might reach the weak. And so we understand that our flesh might be weak. We understand that we're going through things. We understand that there's no perfect person allowed here, that we're all people that are under construction, right? We are all sinners in need of a savior. And so there's no perfect people here. Paul's saying in the church, there's gonna be people that are weak spiritually. There's gonna be people that are struggling with sin and we've gotta come alongside them and we've gotta protect them, strengthen them because the culture loves to prey on them, to prey on the weak. And we're gonna pray for the weak, right? We're gonna pray for them. And so Paul is telling us that we need to strengthen the church, that we need to grow spiritually. It breaks this cycle of, of correcting and encouraging and then correcting and encouraging. So many of us, we live our Christian life this way, is that we come to church on Sunday, we receive the correction, and then we, we hit up the pastor halfway during the week and I need some comfort because I messed up again. And then the next Sunday, I, I get encouraged and then I get comforted and I get, I get corrected and then I get comforted. It's just this cycle that we tend to go through in life where we hear the word of God, we get corrected by it, but then we mess up during the week and we need comfort and we need encouragement. And Paul's saying this, is that what you, what you need is not a fresh start. You need a firm stance. You need a firm stance that we've got to learn to stand firm. Now we understand that all of us that go through seasons where we need a fresh start, we need a do-over, but we can't get a fresh start every week. We gotta learn to stand firm to stand firm against the attacks, to understand suffering will come, to understand that we are a target of the enemy, but our feet are planted and we stand strong and we grow in our faith. And so Paul says, do that, encourage them, minister to them, 
brothers and sisters in the church, we should be doing the ministry. And then he says, be patient with all. Be patient with them. Understand that as we care for people, that we're not, they're not perfect people, that they're under construction. They're God's people. We need to be patient with them. And then let's keep going to verse 15. Paul says, see to it that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to, to one another and to everyone. So we're not repaying evil for evil. We're seeking to do good to others. So number four, a countercultural church would be people of forgiveness. We're not repaying evil. We're seeking to do good. Well, what's to do good to those who do evil to you? Forgive them. That we should be people of forgiveness. And this is such a sore spot in this holiday season because the reality is, is that the enemy attaches himself to unforgiveness and it allows bitterness to take root. And every time you're in that group text, every time you get that phone call about what the plans are for the holidays, well, so-and-so gonna be there? Well, if they're gonna be there, then I'm not gonna be there. And we have this unforgiveness among our family. And the enemy gets in, and listen to me, church, you think that you're causing that person trouble by not being there. You ain't even on their mind. They don't even know that you're not there. It's not killing them, it's killing you. Unforgiveness will kill you, and you've gotta let that go. You've gotta allow the Lord to restore that, to heal that. So we're not repaying the world, we're not repaying our family, we're not repaying the church evil because they did evil to me. I'm seeking to do good and I'm forgiving them. And so we forgive others. In 1 Peter 3, 3 verse 9 echoes this right here. It says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, because we live on the contrary. We live countercultural. He says, bless, for this is you who were called, you were called to this, that you may obtain a blessing. And so we are supposed to live Countercultural, on the contrary. Also in Colossians, just to, to read this part that talks about it as well, Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, well, that's compassion, we talked about that, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, <coughs> bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against one another, Forgive each other, watch this, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And so in that moment that somebody wrongs us, in that moment that somebody does something to us, the Bible says we should forgive them because the Lord forgave us. And so I think about all that I've done, all my sins, all my wrongs, my, wrongs, my past, my mistakes, all that God has forgiven me. And I think, who am I to not extend that forgiveness to them? And so we must be people of forgiveness. And now we get to a section, a very popular few verses here at 1 Thessalonians 5. Paul has already given us how we should act towards leaders, right? Honor, respect, love. And then he shows us how we should act towards one another, be at peace and, and do ministry, care for one another. Now he's like, okay, this is how you should act. This is how others should see you and see you act. And he just rapid fires some things. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, he says, rejoice always, rejoice always. And so we should be a church. We should be a people of joy. 
We should be a people of joy. I choose to rejoice. It's not hard to go into the world and in your workplace and in your school and around people and realize they don't have joy. They might have happiness in a season of high, but when they hit a season of low, they lose all happiness. And so they're on this emotional roller coaster. And if we're being honest, it creeps into the church where us as Christians, we can find ourselves depending on our emotion, depending on our circumstance, looking to that to determine whether or not I'm gonna be happy or not. And, and God's telling us that no, no, you can have joy at any season because it's not an emotion. It's a gift that I give you. And so as a follower of Christ with the Holy Spirit living in me, I can have joy in the middle of chaos. I can have the joy in the middle of lowest of lows. And I just think of those heroes of faith in the room today, those people that are walking through hard times or just coming out of hard seasons. And you've been given diagnosis like cancer and kidney diagnosis and all kinds of craziness, sickness, and you've lost so many loved ones. And we see you and you still have joy. You are a testimony of the power of the Holy Spirit living in you. So continue to let your light shine before others because they're seeing your good deeds and we get a chance to give honor and glory to God because of that. So we should be people of joy. We're not faking it when times are hard. We're not just coming in here and putting on a smile and pretending, no, no, we're just faithful to the God who gives me that joy. I'm faithful to him. And so he goes on to say, pray without ceasing. So number six in your notes, we should be a people of prayer, a people of prayer. And now we understand that in the church, we talk about read your Bible and pray. That's every Sunday, right? Read your Bible and pray. But I want us to understand the nature of prayer. Now prayer connects us to a higher power. Prayer connects us to our creator, connects us to God. And the world is longing for an opportunity to connect to something greater than themselves to connect to that higher power. And that's why you have all the different religions. That's why you have all the different belief systems. That's why you have everybody doing all kinds of stuff to conjure up whatever they can so that they can have an, an outer body experience or they can be in this complete free, you know, emotional zone where they, where they just feel free from everything. We are looking for that. People are craving that because we were created in the image of God, in the likeness of him. In the garden, we walked with God we had that community. We had that communion and prayer. That's what it does. It connects us. And so when he says to pray without ceasing, that lets us know that prayer is not a formal thing where we just bow our heads, close our eyes, get on our knees beside our bed or put our elbows on the table beside our plate and pray. It is a lifestyle that we are constantly praying, constantly talking to him because he cares and he wants that relationship with us. And so we must understand that, that prayer connects us to God. That if you want to be closer to God, increase your prayer time, increase your prayer life, make time to talk to him. And so we can be countercultural. We can have the things that the world desires. We can be people of prayer. And then in verse 18, he says, give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And so we rejoice and we pray and we give thanks because it's God's will for us. It's what's best for us. And so he says, give thanks. Number seven, it wouldn't be Thanksgiving season if I didn't say that we should be a people of gratitude. Gratitude. Every American, right, has this past week been focused on being thankful. But we as a church, 
should not just be thankful one week out of the year. We should have an attitude that's always grateful. We should always be grateful and thankful and blessing the Lord. You see, the world we live in is not thankful for anything. They have a sense of entitlement. That, that I owe, you owe me this, that I deserve this. But we as the church, we understand that we deserve wrath, that we deserve hell, we deserve punishment, we deserve the cross. But because of the sacrifice of Christ and the price that was paid, I can be thankful. And so we have this heart, not of entitlement, but of gratitude, realizing that we don't deserve what we had coming for us. I mean, we, don't, we don't want what we had coming for us, what we, what we deserved. But God stepped in, intervened, and redeemed us from that. And so we should have this heart of gratitude. Gratitude's so life-changing, I just found the study very intriguing. Harvard Health and Berkeley University, they teamed up. They put a research paper out about gratitude. This is a secular paper, not talking about anything with religion. And it states that a grateful life is the best life. It's like the, the world's catching up with the Bible, right? They're like, oh, you wanna be a better person? They said, simply be grateful. They call this the mother of all virtues. And by choosing this virtue of gratefulness, you'll be happier, more satisfied, less materialistic. You'll see an increase in your positive mood. You'll get better sleep, less fatigue. You'll be more patient, more humble, and even full of wisdom, right? By applying this biblical principle. So it is God's desire for his children to live in this heart of gratitude, to be thankful. And I want us to read, it's not in your notes, you can write the reference down, where Paul writes again in Philippians. And it just kind of sums up all that we've been reading. He, he writes it to, to the Philippian church in Philippians 4. And listen to Philippians 4, starting in verse 4. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reason, reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. So do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That really sums it up, that as we rejoice, as we pray, as we're thankful, as those moments of anxiety come in, that God can provide peace as we cast it on him. The peace that surpasses all understanding. He says it's gonna guard your hearts. What's, that, what's it gonna guard it from? Bitterness, unforgiveness, anxiety, worry, doubts. And so we must have the peace of God to guard our hearts. And then he transitions to some, some spiritual things, if you will. He transitions in verse 19 through 21 in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And he says, do not quench the spirits. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. And so number eight, a countercultural church are people of the spirits. We are people of the spirit, not of ourself. Let me let you in on something. All these principles that we just talked about, gratitude even, all of this, joy, honor, all that is not possible without the spirit dwelling in us. That's what separates us from the world. Our faith is not just about getting to heaven. That's gonna be great but our faith anchors on the fact that God comes and dwells with his creation. That when we give our life to him, he comes and, and gives his spirit to us. 
that as a follower of Christ, we are people of the Spirit. And now I started off in the beginning of this saying that we live in a tension of ways that please God and ways that please ourselves. But we read in the scripture that that's really summed up as the desires of the flesh and the desires of the spirit. That we should not walk in the desires of the flesh, but we should walk in the ways of the spirit. And Galatians chapter 5 tells us about this. Galatians 5 verse 16 says, But I say, walk by the spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. So there's a battle there. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So I want to please God. I want to live in his ways. But you have this fleshly desire that's battling against that. And so when we walk in the spirit, we are walking in a way that's, that's countercultural to the people of this world. The reality is, is we can't even be a church without the Spirit, without the Holy Spirit. And now I understand that as you begin to talk about the third person of the Trinity, that you can see the Spirit, as so, you, you differentiate. You're like, well, okay, God, the Father, he's this judgment, God, God of wrath, you know, holy God. And then you got Jesus, and he's like the loving part of God, and he come to save us. But then you got the Holy Spirit, and I don't understand it, and so it's just kind of weird, and I stay away from it, right? And we kind of dissect it that way. But the reality is, is that they're all the same. That God, the Father, God, Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit, it's all the same, different expressions of how God's gonna present himself. And so God cares so much about us that he presents his spirit to us so that as God the Father sits in heaven on the throne and the Son Jesus is at his right hand, his spirit can be active in the world and be active in the church. And so we shouldn't shy away from the things of the Spirit. We should lean into those things because that's how we can encounter God. That's how we as Christians can live in a world that's pulling hell up. That's what the world's doing. They're pulling the things of hell up to the earth. We as countercultural Christians, we pull heaven down. We're pulling heaven down. And in heaven, there is no sickness. There is no disease. In heaven, there's joy. There's peace. In heaven, there's the power of God. And so we're pulling that down on earth and we as the church get to create something that nothing else can even touch. And that is where the power of God operates here on earth. That in this place, the sick can be healed, the lame can walk, that people can have joy, they can have peace because we are an organism that God created that's the hope of the world. It's the church. And so we should go against the culture and not camouflage ourselves into the culture. The reality is, is when we talk about modern Western church, it is very easy for us to get hyper-focused on reaching the world that we become like the world. That instead of being countercultural and standing out and living this called out life, we live a camouflaged life and we blend in. And so you go to work, you go to school, you in your family circles, holiday after holiday, year after year, and they don't even know that God's done something in your life. But God has called us to live called out, to be pulled out of this so that we can then pull other people out as well. So we're not living out of this world in a, such a way that I'm better than you. I'm, I'm called out of this world so that I can call you out with me, so I can rescue those people who are, who are on this wide path of destruction, and I can pull them onto this path of light. And then he goes on to say, number nine, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, our last point here, verse 22, 
Abstain from every form of evil. We talked about this last week, but we should be a people of holiness. If it ain't pleasing to God, then we don't do it. We should live this holy life because we live in a world that we see evil everywhere. It doesn't matter where you go, what you watch, what you do, there's evil happening around us. And Jesus told us it would be this way. And anytime we go against that, anytime we, act, we live holy and sanctified and not trying to please ourselves and give into that, to that way, anytime we go against the grain, there's gonna be persecution. There's gonna be people coming against us, saying things against us, trying to slander us, trying to attack us. And Jesus said, if the world hates you, it's okay because they hated me first. And so take heart, he says, because I've overcome it all. And so we must understand that we have to maintain this life of holiness, that we have to stand out and show the world a better way because their way is broken. Their way is backwards. And so we have to pull heaven down to show them that they can have freedom, they can have love, they can have joy. We have to live in a way that says, thy kingdom come, not mine. Thy will be done, not mine, on earth as it is in heaven. And so that's what Paul's saying to the church in 1 Thessalonians chapter five. He's saying the culture's knocking at your door. People are leaving the church. People are bowing down. People are afraid. They're worried. They're anxious. And you have the answer. You have the solution. You can get everything you need and so much more that you can give it to those in your community. And so may we be a church that the culture doesn't overshadow us, but we overshadow the culture. May this be the place of peace, of joy, or where the hurt, the faint-hearted, the weak, those who are going through, through everything in life, trials and tribulations, sufferings, can come in and can encounter God in a transformative way. That's what Paul's telling the church, and that's what God's telling us today. And the reality is, is without God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, it's impossible. And so today, as we move into a time of reflection, we're gonna allow that spirit that we talked about that dwells in, inside of every believer to bring correction, conviction, to maybe comfort some of those people who need comfort, to lead us and guide us in what to do next, to, to examine our hearts, as the Bible says, so that we can be purified and holy. And then the reality is there are those in the house today that the Holy Spirit doesn't dwell in you because you're far from him and you don't know him. And today is the day of salvation. God is drawing you into a relationship with him. And so can we bow our heads all together and move into this time of asking the Lord to speak to us, to reflect on what it, he's saying to us, how we can live countercultural, called out, not camouflaged, blending in, but that we can live in such a way that's pleasing to God and rescuing to people. And so, Father, in this house, you see us as our heads are bowed, just in a reverent moment where we are seeking your face, seeking the Spirit, seeking the things of God. And God, we're asking you, Father, that in this moment, God, that you by your Holy Spirit would stir in the hearts of the believer, that you would stir us, Lord, that you would cause that which is impure and, and sin in our life to rise to the, to the top, that we might deal with it today. God, for those in the house that their faith is weak, they're going through a hard time. Father, would you now, by your Holy Spirit, by, by your very name, bring peace. Heal them, restore them, 
God, as you are moving in this house, we realize that there are those that are far from you. Those that don't have a relationship with you. And they're realizing in this moment that they don't hear your voice, that they don't talk to you, that they don't have the salvation that we talk about. They don't have the freedom and the peace that we talk about. That which you so desire right now to give them. And so Father, in this moment, as we focus in on salvation, surrendering our heart to you, submitting to you, your word is clear that if we believe in our hearts that you died and rose again, if we confess that with our mouth, that Jesus is Lord and he died and he rose again, he conquered hell, death, and the grave. He took my place on the cross. I can be forgiven. I can have a relationship with God. Father, there's those in this house that today's that day that they're gonna give their heart to you. They're gonna confess that. They believe that. And they're gonna receive forgiveness. They're gonna receive the Holy Spirit. They're gonna receive peace. And so if that's you in this room today, we don't embarrass, but we're bold people. And if you would boldly say today, as everybody's heads are bowed, eyes are closed, but you're saying today, that's me, Michael. The Holy Spirit's drawing me into a relationship with him and I can't shake it. I don't understand it. I'm not sure what I'm feeling right now, but I know God is stirring in my life and I'm coming back to him. I realize that today is my day to surrender to the Lord, to live my life pleasing to him. If that's you, would you lift up your hands and say, that's me. I'm giving my life to Christ today. Thank you, I see y'all's hands. Anybody else? I see your hand, sir. Anybody else? Today's my day, giving my life to the Lord. You can put your hands down. If we could all together, we're gonna stand. We move now into a time of response where we respond to what the Lord has done in our life. For so many of us, our reasonable response is to worship him as a new creation, a healed creation, a, a, a person of peace and of joy. And we're gonna do that. We're gonna worship together as we sing, but our prayer team are making their way along the side walls. Listen to me, if you gave your life to Christ today, or you should have, these are the people you need to talk to. They not only wanna pray for you, celebrate with you, they've got a Bible they would love to give you as a gift, a new believer's guide they would love to just give you to help you on this faith journey. But more than that, they wanna connect with you so that you don't have to do this alone. This faith journey was not meant to walk in isolation. We are better together. And so if you gave your life to Christ today or made a decision to come back to Christ, I encourage you to go to them and, and join those who are gonna go to them for prayer. The prayer team prays for all kinds of needs, marriages, sickness, finances, your faith. And so I encourage you to respond either to the prayer team, to the altar, or maybe in, in worship to the Lord. Can we do that together, Father? We thank you, Father, for what you're doing in this house. We thank you for your love, your mercy. We thank you, Father, that in this moment right here, we can worship you as a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old is gone, the new is here. And so, Father, we just right now wanna crown you as king of our hearts to bow before you and to realize that you are the source of everything, that, that everything bows at your name, that everything is under your feet, that you are Lord of it all. 
And so we give you our life. We give you everything in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Come on, let's worship together.